We're going to be in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Now on Sunday, we talked about uh, Acts chapter 1. Is this, is it sealed? Yes, it's sealed. Okay. So we're safe. On Sunday, we began a study in, uh, in, in the book of Acts. And uh, it just so happened that what, I've been, what, what, what we've been studying on Wednesday night dovetailed with our study in the book of Acts. And on Sunday, we covered verses 1 through, basically 1 through 3. And so what I want to do is I want to read verse 4 down through verse 11 together, but we're not, this is really not part of our study in Acts, although it will, you know, it's definitely part of it. Um, But I want to cover the fourth account of the Great Commission tonight in verse 8. So we'll read verses 4 through 11, and then we'll pray together. Verse 4 says, And being assembled together... With them, Jesus commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Just keep in mind, based upon verse 5, you can clearly see, and we'll study this later, that baptism in the Bible is not always in water. There are other baptisms in the Scripture. Verse 6, And when they uh, therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons, which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Let's pray. Our Lord in heaven, thank you for our church, uh, Lord, but we thank you especially for the cross. There would be no church if it wasn't for the cross. There would be no church if there wasn't a resurrection. There would be no salvation if it wasn't for your blood shed for us. Lord, thank you for... Uh, for dying in our place. Thank you for being buried in a borrowed tomb. Thank you for rising again from the dead in power, even the power that we read in verse 8. Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for bringing us into a right relationship with you. Thank you for what you're doing in the hearts of your people here tonight. And I pray that this passage that we study tonight would be part of that work that you're doing in them, that you would Uh, Teach us all from your word, that you would help us to understand, that you would help us to obey, that you would help us to be encouraged by the things you've uh, put in your word. Lord, we pray for those that that aren't here tonight, that can't be here, that are unwell, Brother and Sister Thomas and uh, Brother and Sister Muxlow, 
and others that, uh, that are just not well enough to be here. Lord, give grace to them and strengthen them. Bless Brother Stewart as he's traveling right now and others that, uh, that are, are away, away from us. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would give grace, especially Miss Judy with her, um, the potential of the pacemaker and the issues with her blood pressure. Please give grace there and bless her in the ladies' Bible study. We do pray for the VBS coming up as well. Lord, please, I pray that your grace and power would rest upon that work. Lord, you would help our church, Lord, wholly to be involved in, in that ministry and be well prepared to serve you by uh, serving these kids and uh, sharing your, your truth with them. So please give us grace. Help us, Lord, even now as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, what we see from verse, verse 4 and verse 5, we'll co- cover at a later time. But what we can say is, uh, the reason I wanted to read verse 4 and 5 is because he, the Lord mentions the promise of the Father, which is, do you notice how often I've been talking about the Holy Spirit? Do you notice that? Has anybody picked up on that? Almost when, I, when I've talked about the, the account in Matthew and the account in Mark, and then we read extensively from the book of John chapter 14 and chapter 16 on Sunday. There's a reason for that. It's not that I'm a charismatic. I just, this, the, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit is a major theme in the book of Acts. It's a major theme. And you know what? There is a right way and a right, and a tr- there is truth about the Holy Spirit. We're going to get into, you know, as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to get into the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We're going to get into the, the, the tongues that are spoken in the book of Acts. We're going to get into the healing that's in there. Well, I mean, we shouldn't be afraid of that. It's in the Scripture. But there is a right way and there is a wrong way, right? What the Bible says is, of course, what we go by. But the presence of the Spirit of God was, remember what we read in John where the Bible says, the, the Lord said He would go back to the Father and He would send the Spirit, the Comforter, in my name. In other words, He would come, the, the Holy Spirit would come in the place of Christ as a representative of Christ so that we can fully say, we can fully say that Christ is in us. How? The Holy Spirit. And the book of Acts is not, as, as my Bible says, the Acts of the Apostles. This is what we saw on Sunday. But the Acts of Christ by means of the Holy Spirit in the church. That's what that book of Acts is really about. And that's what we're going to see over and over. Okay, so this is what the promise is in verse 4 and verse 5. The promise of the Father. Now, the tasks, the task that we have been reading about in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and now in Acts, for the church to do this monumental task. This is a global work. It goes to the very ends of the earth. We'll see tonight. It is a work that spans cultures, languages. It spans time. And it's in effect all the way. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew? And lo, what does he say? I am with you. How long? Always. Even unto the end of the world. So that means the Great Commission is in effect all the way until the Lord returns. And we're going to see that same theme overlap here. We're repeating ourselves because the Lord repeated Himself in these four uh, accounts of the Great Commission. So we see all of these things, but before we get into that, uh, before we get into that, let's look at verses 6 and 7. And when they were there, when they therefore were come together, that's the eleven, because we know it's, it's, it's the 11 because of the verse 
above. Verse number 2 says he had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. That's the 12 minus Judas who, who hung himself. So verse 6 says, When they therefore were come together, he, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. Now, as a side note, what we need to understand about this is that, you remember, when Jesus came on the scene, the, the, the Jews were under the dominion of the Roman Empire. Okay? They did not like that. They resented that. And so they were looking, and you can see it throughout the Gospels, there were times when they wanted to take Jesus by force in the book of John and make him a king. They were looking for that physical, temporal deliverance. They were looking to have the glory of David and Solomon's kingdom reestablished. And so they had here the son of David. That's what they called Christ. That's his messianic title. They had the son of David. Well, this is David's lineage. This is David's seed. We need to make him the king and we need to restore that kingdom, that physical kingdom of Israel. And that's, so that expectation was already there. So now, obviously, the Lord has gone through the passion. He has risen from the dead. And that, we remember, that took them by surprise, did it not? They were not expecting the Lord to go to the cross. Right all the way up until he was arrested. <laughs> they were not expecting it. So now it's all done. That's water under the bridge. We're past that. And now what are they asking? Oh, all right, you've done all that. All that had to be done. We get it now. You've told us the scripture said you had to die uh, for sin. We get it. You had to redeem us. We know. Now, now, are you going to set up the kingdom now? The apostles still expected a physical kingdom on earth that was promised to Israel to be established. They still expected that physical kingdom. Now, what we need to remember is that doctrinally speaking, that physical kingdom on earth that God has promised to the Jews has still not been fulfilled. And we know that from what Jesus said in reply. The second thing I want you to see from these two verses is that the apostles still did not understand the timing of the kingdom and where they were currently in God's timeline. That was not something God had revealed to them up to that point. Now, we look back with ease and we say, oh, well, that's easy. You know, you, you just didn't know. We're 2,000 years later and we look back and say, well, it's not time yet. <laughs> but they didn't have, that, that, they didn't have the, the, that kind of information. And what's interesting is they say, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Did the Lord say, kingdom? What kingdom? Did the Lord say that? No. Did the Lord say, oh, well, you're mistaken. This kingdom is actually a spiritual kingdom. We're not talking about an actual, physical, literal kingdom. Did the Lord say, oh, well, this is really a spiritual kingdom. And this Israel that you're talking about is not really Israel like the bloodline of Israel, this is actually spiritual Israel. This is actually, actually referring to you guys and to the other believers. You're spiritual Israel. What I'm actually, does anybody know what I'm describing? Amillennialism. See, amillennialism teaches that there is no kingdom that is physical and literal on the earth. There is no kingdom. They teach that the kingdom is spiritual. In essence, they teach that the church is the kingdom. And that Israel is the church. 
It's actually spiritual Israel. And so the promises that God made in the Old Testament to the physical people of Israel are actually being transferred and, and, and are, are, it's called replacement theology. The church has replaced Israel because Israel rejected Christ. That's a, a nut, in a nutshell, amillennialism. But here's, I, I don't want to get into all that, but what I want to show you is that's not correct. The Lord did not correct them. All that the Lord said was, the timing for that is not for you to know. Does that not imply that, that what they were saying is true? It does. That there would be a kingdom. So here's the way the, the Lord implied that the time for the physical kingdom had not yet come. But there will be a kingdom. There will be a kingdom. The Lord Jesus Christ will reign on this dirt. And He will reign from Jerusalem. Israel will be the primary nation, the head nation, sort of like, I assume, like the United States is among the nations, but it'll be far better. The curse on this earth will be lifted. And God's law will be the law. There will be a theocracy, right? And under Christ in that kingdom, there'll be, a, there'll be little kingdoms. And those of us in the church that are faithful will serve Him as Rulers in that kingdom. Rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. That's what Revelation says. That kingdom is still going to happen. And it is a literal kingdom. It is a physical kingdom. The scripture is perfectly clear. That's what we call premillennialism. That there is a literal physical kingdom yet to come. And of course we know there's between now and that time, there's a lot that goes on. But the Lord's not done with what he's doing and he doesn't deny it here. He actually establishes that the time for that is not yet come. That's all he's saying. Now, the things in, the things in verse 8, which is, I'll read it, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. This is the last account of the Great Commission, verse 8. Okay? There are a few things that overlap the first three accounts of the Great Commission that we've studied. Primarily, you have the presence of God with, like, as an attachment, an enabling attachment. You have the presence of God accompanying the command. You see, he says, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You shall receive power to do this work. So that's, that's also found in Mark, and that's also found in Matthew. Lo, I am with you always. Mark says, the Lord working with them right, in the work of the Great Commission. That's the first thing. The second thing that overlaps and is repeated is uttermost part of the earth. The fact that the Great Commission is a global work. It is not just to one, limited to one location or one people group. And in Matthew, we saw that in Matthew and in Luke, the mention of nations. Who knows what a nation refers to in the Bible? Yes, sir. People group. So a nation is not referring to political boundaries like we think of as a nation, the nation of Germany or the nation of whatever. That refers to lines on a map. In the, in the scripture, the word nation refers to people groups. And so within one nation, within one uh, political boundary, you might have different nations. For instance, in Iraq, they have a whole nation of Kurds. They're different than the Iraqi people, but they're within the boundaries of Iraq. The Lord says He wants the gospel to every people group, every division of people. Second thing 
In Mark, he said he wanted the gospel to go to every creature. What's that refer to? That refers to every single individual. Okay? And then in Acts, what you see is the last one, the uttermost part of the earth. That is referring to what? That refers to every geographical location. That's a geographical term. That's referring to the earth. So the Lord wants the gospel to go to every people group, every nation. He wants the gospel to go to every, uh, every individual. And he wants the gospel to go to every location. Now, I don't know how more clear, how much more clear the Lord could be. He obviously loves every single person. Is that not right, Ben? Is that he loves every single group of people, and he loves the people that are in literally every place on the planet. And Christ, if he told us to go to those people, that means Christ also died for them, and salvation is available to them also. It does not, the Scripture say, for God so loved, what? Help me now. The what? The world, don't stop there, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What's the next verse say? For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world. Now here's the kicker. But that the world through him might be saved. That means the world could be saved. Every person, all of all the people that God's created could be saved by that cross. That's amazing. And so we see the extent of the Great Commission in this final, uh, this final uh, account of it, verse 8. But what I want to concentrate on is verse 8. But ye shall receive power. Power. Now, we, in Matthew 28, we talked about a power. Jesus said, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. And that power, does anybody remember, referred to what? That power referred to the kind of power that, that what? That a government might have, like a political power, a dominion in that way. This power in the scripture is used to describe like force, ability, all right? And in the scripture, this, is, this same word is used to describe things like the miracles of, the, of Christ and the apostles, the miracles they performed. It's used to describe the preaching of the cross. The power is, is in the preaching of the cross. This word power is used to describe the power of the resurrection of Christ. Christ rose from the dead by his power his ability to overcome the forces of nature, to overcome whatever, uh, whatever death might, however it might hold him. This power refers to the ability to persist within hardship power. This power refers to strength that's present in the inner man. I could go to these verses, but I'm not for time's sake. And this power also refers to God's creative power. When God created the world by his Power. He upholds all things, Colossians, by the word of his power. This is that power. And this power has a source. What's the source of this power? It is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God in the believer. Now, now hear me, this is key. It enables the believer to do things that he or she would not normally or naturally do to accomplish His work in the earth. Here's what that means. 
you know and I know that it's God's will for you and for me to share the gospel and to, to, to be a witness to other people. You know and I know that's what God wants his people to do, right? You know that. But how many of you have fallen short at that goal? Yeah. Here's the thing, though. The power is available for that task. God's power is available to enable you to fulfill that, to do it. Now, that power is already in you because that power comes from the Spirit of God who you have in you. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you're not God's child. The Scripture is perfectly clear. So all of you that have believed in Christ, you have the Spirit of God. Remember, it's a, it's a what? Come on now. It's a seal. The Spirit of God is a seal of a true, the genuine article. So if you have the Spirit of God, that means you have the power. In other words, you have the ability with God's help to accomplish this work, to open your mouth to tell other people about Jesus. You can do it even if you would not naturally do it, even if you would be the person not caught dead doing something like that naturally. You can be a witness. You can obey the Lord in this matter. You can do it. You can tell other people about Jesus. Not because you're anything, but because you have the source of power in you. And that power gives you the ability to do this work. That's why he's given us the Spirit of God. One of the main reasons. Look at verse 8. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses. You see that? The purpose of the power, the purpose of the presence of the Holy Spirit, I've said this before, is not to make us just to make us feel good but it is to enable us to do the work. So God not only tells us the work to do, He gives us the ability to do it. Now, we must, but the, the problem we have, the problem I have, and I assume the problem you have, is not a problem of ability, but it's a problem of willingness. That's where the chain usually falls apart. It's a matter of willingness. Look, if you would, hold your place here. Look at Zechariah chapter 4. That's at the end of the Old Testament, just before Matthew. Speaking in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra chapter four, Zechariah chapter 4, the Lord is speaking. Now, this is the Old Testament. This is not the New Testament. But notice, even in the Old Testament, what it says of Zerubbabel, who is the governor in the time of Nehemiah. All right? or the time of Ezra. He was one of the leaders that was there to rebuild the temple when they left Babylonian captivity. Verse 6 says, And he said, He answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. So Zerubbabel, God says of him, this is not up to you and your ability to do this work. This was God's work that He gave, him to, to, gave to Zerubbabel, to the people of Israel to do, to lead them. It's not up to you, Zerubbabel. You don't have power to do this. 
But God says now to us, our work is different than Zerubbabel's. Our work is this great commission. We don't have to rely on our own power. I'll be honest with you, I'm timid. When I go out and witness to people, I'm timid. But we must first be willing and second, rely upon the Lord for that power to do it. He will enable us. He will enable us to do what we would not normally do, what we thought we could not do. He will give us the power. Now, the next thing I want you to see is the word witnesses. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And we'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 2 when it actually happens. And ye shall be witnesses. Now, there's two ways this word witnesses can be taken. The first way is a ref- can be a reference to the apostles themselves. Because they were eyewitnesses, right? Verse number 2. Um, okay, I'm, I'm confusing it. Going back to Luke, we studied Luke on Sunday how that they were eyewitnesses. Remember, the apostles were eyewitnesses. In other words, they were repeating, they were repeating what they had seen and what they had heard. Now, you can look at this, this word witnesses, ye shall be witnesses unto me. Two, you could, you could say, well, he's referring to the apostles who bore witness of the words and works of Jesus Christ, most particularly his resurrection. And you, and that would be perfectly fine because you know what we have in the New Testament? And this is the value of the Bible. People say, well, I don't believe the Bible is just a bunch of fairy tales. Well, it's a bunch of fairy tales written by people who saw it with their own two eyeballs. <laughs> and not just one or two. These are people who, as far as the resurrection and the crucifixion, Peter says, I was standing there when they were crucifying him in 1 Peter. And the other apostles they said they were witnesses of these things. They saw these things for 40 days. They saw the Lord resurrected. We covered that on Sunday. But what did they do? God led those men to write what they saw in the Scripture. So what you have in this is what's called a primary source. Now people look at the Bible and say, well, it's the Bible, I don't count. But any other document in history, you would, you would look at what was written by the eyewitness and you would say, well, that's a primary source, right? Like when you read the, a, George Washington, a journal of George Washington, nobody says, well, well, that's George Washington's journal. You can't really count that. And you know what we have here? We have, we have the Word of God and there are more copies of the New Testament, far, far more copies than almost any other document, ancient document in history. And they almost all agree to what it says. So what we have is the apostles relaying their eyewitness accounts in the Scripture. That's what you have here. God led them to do that. So they wrote what they saw and heard. They were witnesses. And then we took the witness that they gave and we we share it with other people. So in essence, the apostles, when we read the Bible to other people, the apostles are bearing witness to what they saw and heard. That's one way you can view it. If you look at Acts, look, just look at a few places in Acts. Hold your place in chapter 1. Look at verse number 22. And we'll cover, of course, these later. Verse 22, Beginning from the baptism of John, unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. In other words, Judas died, so they needed another person to be an official Witness. That is, he was appointed 
to such a place. He was a witness, Matthias. Chapter 2, verse 32 says this. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are, what? Witnesses. Chapter 3, verse 15. And killed the prince of life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. 10, verse 39. Look at chapter 10, if you would. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. And last, look at 13, chapter 13, verse 31. And he was seen many days of them, which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. Jesus said at the, at the, uh, the account of the Great Commission in Luke, Thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in His name among all nations. And he, after that He says, and ye are witnesses of these things. But there's another way that this can be a witness. You could look at this verse and say, I'm a witness. Now you're not an eyewitness, neither am I. There are no eyewitnesses that are alive. Luckily, we have the eyewitnesses' words here, right? So we're good, but you and I are witnesses in as much as a witness is someone who testifies or attests to facts. That's what a witness is at its core. We can testify to the truth of God's Word, to the truth of the gospel, to the truth of the way of salvation, to the truth of the Savior. When I was talking to Will, that's what I was trying to do, to, to tell, just tell him, this is the truth. Now that should give you some comfort. Here's why. You know, books have been written about how to be a soul winner. And I'll be honest with you, I don't like the term soul winner. I don't like it. It's a term that comes out of the Old Testament, so it's not really contextually correct with the New Testament doctrine. He that winneth souls is wise. That's found in the book of Proverbs. That's not even really found. Now, it can be applied. I'm not going to be cantankerous over it, but that's not really a term I use a whole lot. But you know what? You, don't have, you and I don't have to be experts at soul winning. We don't know how to draw the net. A lot of that stuff is just bunk. We don't know. We don't have to have all. We don't have to have the, the right right way to stand and the, where to put our hand on someone's shoulder and where to do all this stuff. Of course, people. Of course, people are uncomfortable because they might might not know what to say and they don't know the response to everything. And, and that's why some people don't witness because they might they they feel sheepish. They might not know what to say. They're shy. They're afraid. But being a witness is not that. Being a witness is not being an expert. You know what being a witness is. Being a witness means attesting to the truth, Amen. stating the truth. That, it actually falls short of trying to convince someone to believe. The word witness. You know, and there's a place for convincing people. There's a place for debate and apologetics and those things. There's a place to argue the truth. But being a witness is not that. Being a witness is just telling people the truth. Amen. Just that. Now think of, think of evangelism. Instead of, instead of thinking of winning souls to Christ, 
That's the terminology used. Because that, that seems kind of technical. Like there's a process and there's a way you got to figure it out. And you got to know what to say. But think of it rather as you're just testifying to the facts, to the truth. This is what Jesus did for you. This is why Jesus died. This is what God says of all people. This is what happens when you die. Is that not easier? You just got to know the truth. And you bear witness of the truth to other people. It just relieves a little bit of the pressure. You don't have to be an expert. You just got to tell what you know. Right? This is what the Lord is telling us to do. This is what the Lord is telling us to do. Be a truth teller. And then we get to the term, Ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So here, here's where it starts. They're in Jerusalem at the time this is spoken. Well, they're near Jerusalem. They're on the Mount of Olives, which is right across the, the, uh, the valley. They're in Jerusalem. The Lord says, you're going to start in Jerusalem. And you're going to go to Judea, which is the province of which Jerusalem is the capital. So that's a, a larger area. And then you have Samaria, which is north of Jerusalem. And then, of course, you have uttermost part of the earth. That includes all the rest of the, the area, all the rest of the world. But what this presents is a basic geographical outline of the book of Acts. They started in Jerusalem, chapters 1 through 7, all the way up until the martyrdom of Stephen. And then, after the martyrdom of Stephen, the persecution increased, and so they started to scatter within Judea. Everywhere they went, they preached the gospel. We'll see this later. And then Philip took the gospel to Samaria. And Samaria was a, group, uh, was a people that were not really full-blooded Jews. So they were despised. In fact, in the, the Samaritan woman, the disciples, when Jesus met the Samaritan woman by the well, they were surprised that he was even talking to her. They would avoid Samaria, would not speak to a Samaritan because they considered them uh, an impure bloodline. And then finally, when you get to Peter with Cornelius... Who was, a, who was a Gentile, and then later with Paul, they took the gospel all around the world. So that pattern, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost part of the earth, is the geographical outline of the book of Acts. Now here's what I want you to remember from this, and we're almost finished. The racial predispositions of these apostles, because they were Jews, were nullified by this command. Now, at this time in history, there was a high level of racism. You talk about racism now, you ain't, they ain't got nothing on this. These people would not even look at people. They, they called Gentiles dogs. All right? This is, this is racism that we don't understand. But the Lord totally nullified it. When He told them to go to the Samaritans, and then, who are, who are the mixed breeds, and then to the Gentiles, the unclean. And I'm not joking. Unclean. They weren't even allowed to eat with them. When the Lord told them to do that, He totally, totally destroyed these racial ideas that they had had. And that goes to this day. Racism, no matter, no matter what direction it goes, or whether it's black on white, white on black, or various other racial components where one is superior and the other and all that stuff, that is nullified by the gospel. That's nullified by the cross. 
That's nullified by the gospel. That's nullified by the Great Commission. That's nullified by the, the fact the church is made up of all different races. I mean, on multiple levels. It's totally null. Furthermore, they were commanded to do these things, to take the gospel, even though they didn't fully understand what they were doing. <laughs> They don't get it. As the Lord told them to obey this and go be a witness, and they weren't even sure what was going on. They were to act by faith. And then lastly, you have this, and this is the thing you probably most often hear, is the principle of progression. They started close, and then they went out, and then a little bit further, and a little bit further. Here's the principle. When you're seeking to be a witness, start with the people closest to you. But, but you'll, you'll recognize that when you do that, those are the most difficult people to witness to. Those are the most, pe- most difficult people to share the gospel with. But that's who you should start with. It's not right to take the gospel across the ocean if we won't take the gospel to our family members and neighbors. It's out of order. See this order? It's out of order. Because it's easier to go over there. And it's easier to give the gospel to a stranger. They don't know you. And their common courtesy, most of the time, prevents them from really blasting you like your family would. And even as our church, when we start to evangelize, we should not be supporting missionaries across the ocean in Cambodia like the Browns or in the Philippines like the Masons and not be doing the job here in Greenville. That's not right. You know, there's a missionary I've been thinking about who's, who's a, he's been here. He's going to New York uh, to start a church. He's from New York. He's going back to New York. I was taught him in Tabernacle. You know, I'd love to see when he goes up there, he's going up there in the uh, end of July, beginning of August to, 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 to move back up there to try to start a church. You know what I'd love to see? I'd love to see people from this church go up to New York for like a week and just, just help him evangelize. Yeah, you know, I'd love to see that. You know what that would be? That's like Samaria. That's leaving our immediate vicinity and going to the next place. New Yorkers are different than Greenvillians and Michigan, I mean, I mean, miss you. But you know, that would be like, that'd be like you going and, and you, like Samaria for, for South Carolina. I'd love to do that. But the other thing we need to remember that as you go out, it get, it's, it's, it's most difficult close to witness. And then as you go out, it gets, it, it, in a way, it gets easier. But, all, but the reverse of that is in that immediate, that close circle, that's where the language is the most familiar. The culture is the most familiar. You know what people are thinking most of the time when you're witnessing to them. You know how they're interpreting what you're saying. But as you go out into that circle, now think about missionaries and evangelists and pastors. As you go further out into that circle, it gets confusing. It gets more difficult. And you get out to the edge, the uttermost part of that circle. You're dealing with people in different cultures, different languages, and different thought processes and worldviews and and value systems, and it's hard. There's a lot of things, of things you can, uh, you know, traps you can fall into 
because it is so much different. So in a way, the closer you are to the middle, it's difficult because those are the people closest to you. But in a way, you know them best. You're most familiar in those surroundings. But the reverse to that is the further you get out, the more difficult it becomes because the, the surroundings are a lot more difficult and unfamiliar. As a church, as we think about every creature, all nations, we should be thinking about, all right, you know, we, we have a, a Jackie Powell, she support, uh, she, she's working with getting scriptures to, to Jewish people, all right? And then we have uh, David Roth, he's working among, among, in the prisons here locally. That's awesome. You know, but we ought, to, we ought to have some people that are, we ought to be putting our money to some degree, in some way or another, with people that are in Samaria, that are in our own country perhaps, but just a little bit further away. That's what I'm thinking about Brother Pharaoh going to New York. But then we also got to think, are we supporting missionaries that are going everywhere? Like to the furthest places. Or is it always the same country over and over? That's the kind of things we need to think about. Because this is the outline. This is the task. And this is the directions the Lord has given us for the Great Commission. Let's pray.